Welcome to the EFC Podcast. I'm Karen Stiller from Faith Today Magazine. Sometime in the very early 1990s, my mother-in-law handed me a book unlike any I had ever read. I didn't grow up around Christian books, and the Christian publishing industry was just a baby then, compared to the giant it is today. But that book, Six Hours, One Friday, helped me understand my faith in a new and deeper way. It touched me. That book was published in 1989 and was Max Licato's third book. He has just released his 35th called Unshakable Hope, Building Our Lives on the Promises of God. Max is a pastor. In fact, he's been called America's pastor and an amazingly prolific author whose books have sold 100 million copies in 54 languages around the world. And he joins us today. Welcome, Max. Oh, you're very kind. Thank you for allowing me to be on the on the podcast. Well, I feel like I can call you Max and tell me if I can't, <laughs> but I feel I know you, which I think is kind of part of your writing genius. You have this kind of folksy storytelling style. Is that why people love your book so much, do you think? I don't I don't know, uh, but you, you certainly can call me Max. <laughs> okay, good. Too late now. It's too late, yeah. I don't, you don't need to call me Reverend Most Holy High and Mighty. <laughs> So what is the appeal, do you think? You've said you write books for people who don't read books, and that really interested me. Maybe maybe that's part of it. You know, I uh, I really do love to write. I do love stories, and uh, I think readers can tell if uh, if the writer enjoys the craft. And, uh, and also I think readers uh, love stories. We all love stories. So maybe between those two, it, it, it works out pretty good. I, I never set out to be a writer, but uh, I found that uh, I loved doing it, uh, and, uh, and, and it came comparatively easy uh, for me. And, and, but I've still always remained in, in the work of the church, in the pulpit, uh, preaching and, and helping to lead a church in, in, in Texas. And so that's been a, a, a good balance for me. Uh, the writing and the preaching, they seem to complement each other uh, well. And um, I semi I'm semi-retired as of about three weeks ago. Mm. Uh, I, I no longer lead the church staff, and uh, but I still preach. I still uh, preach about 50 percent of the of the year. At least that plan kicked in just three weeks ago. Oh, was, very good. So I imagine the fact that you are still like kind of spending so much time in the pulpit connects you with, um, you know, people, Christians leading their lives. So you have a sense of maybe what their concerns are and what book would be a good book at a certain time. Is that important? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I, I think I think it keeps me engaged with people, uh, it, you know, just even in, in certain conversations before and after the service or visiting with people over mm-hmm. a cup of coffee during during the middle of the week it helps me stay alert to to where people are and then I also I think uh, my my commitment to, to preach uh, pushes me to explore topics uh, you know uh, and, and and try to answer the question how can people uh, who desire to have a healthier faith, how can we help them? How, yeah. how can we grow? And, um, and, and, and so that the, uh, the consequence of that or the result of that is, uh, are books, uh, because most of my books come out of, out of sermons. 
and all of my sermons uh, come out of trying to just answer the question, how can we encourage one another better? What's the issue we're dealing with these days? And, uh, and so I, I feel like it keeps me fresh. It keeps me trying to think of uh, a new way to, to tell the old story. Yeah. Now, I'm a writer myself, and I know a lot of writers. And so I'd love to ask you just maybe one more process question, because I think people are really interested in hearing from other writers. So you start with a sermon series. And then what is your process for writing the books? Do you then kind of sequester yourself away in a cabin in the wilderness? Or what do you do? Well, okay, here's a good example. Um, Last weekend, I began a series at our church, a series of sermons, and this series of sermons will last until uh, the first weekend of December, and it's based on the miracles of Jesus, and the big idea is be open to a miracle, be a part of a miracle, okay. so there's my there's my big idea, my, you know, we kind of call it the hook, yeah. you know, what we call it, we're calling the sermon series Awestruck, mm. Awestruck. And so the big idea is, can I live open to a miracle? And is there a way I can be a part of a miracle? Of course, beneath the canopy of that conversation of miracles, there are a variety of questions. Does God do miracles? Why does God perform miracles sometimes and not other times? Is there something that I do to set the stage or create the condition for a miracle? Well, as I begin to list those out, then I'm beginning to create the the chapters, or in this case, the sermons. And so that's what I'm working on right now. So okay. last week, I, 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 uh, I'm sorry, this weekend, my message is on Jesus turning the water into wine. And so I yesterday finished that message. I cleaned it up. Uh, I went over it like for the fourth or fifth time. It's tidy. It's, I think it's in good shape. But I know from experience that once I present it, there'll be other things that I want to change. And so I'll come back to it on Monday and Tuesday and do more spit and polish until I finally have it kind of cleaned up again. I'll put it aside. And then once I preach all of the sermons in the series, sometime after the early part of December, uh, I'll, I'll have two or three weeks and I'll come back and I'll just go from message to message to message. And I'll take all of those messages and I'll turn them into a book. Oh. And that's when I take the uh, take the book and the manuscript and I send it to my editor and she's going to tear it up. She's okay. she's going to send it back to me with with more red ink and I'll be discouraged. And I'll, <laughs> I'll throw in the towel and I'll cry, but then I'll rally. And I'll pull myself up and I'll say, OK, let's give it a go. And, and uh, that begins a, probably a three month editing process uh, back and forth. I'll work on it for two weeks. She'll work on it for two weeks. I'll work on it for two weeks. She'll work on it for two weeks. And then after about two or three months, we have it ready hmm. and it's it's cleaned up. One unique thing that we do that, that I've had other people say, I've never heard that before. It's the very last thing we do is uh, she flies to Texas from Portland, Oregon, uh, and uh, spends a week in San Antonio. Uh, my publisher flies in from Nashville. My editorial assistant, who lives in San Antonio, uh, she clears her calendar. And the four of us meet, and we sit in my living room and read the entire manuscript out loud. Uh, we read it word by word. And we, we don't move from one chapter to the next until all four of us give it the thumbs up. Wow. And, and so it's a tedious process of listening to somebody else read it, hear the manuscript, 
Uh, we always hear things that need to be corrected or could be improved. Sometimes we can do one chapter a day. Sometimes we can do five or six chapters a day, just depending on what we find. But it nearly always takes us a, a week, or a good portion of a week to get through it. And then once we do that, then we're done. Then wow. we're done. Then it goes to the copy editor and uh, she'll, you know, she'll do her work on it, which is a wonderful, wonderfully important part. And uh, then it goes to press. Wow, I love it. I love that inside um, glimpse. And especially that what you said, Max, about feeling discouraged and wanting to throw in the towel. Writers everywhere are feeling encouraged now because you said that. <laughs> it's such a universal thing. Oh, it is. It's a vulnerable thing, writing, as you know. Yeah. It's very vulnerable. It sure is. Um, years ago, I interviewed Haddon Robinson, the late, great Haddon Robinson, and he talked about theologians writing books that are so complicated and and hard and dense and hard to understand and that it just drove him nuts. And as I was reading your book, I thought about that when I came upon this phrase, this simple sentence, God gets you. And I thought that's actually super profound and it's in three words and everyone can understand that. And I'm just wondering, do you think, do we make things too complicated sometimes? And yeah, is it really that simple? Yeah, I, I think, of course, the master teacher is the master himself, Jesus. Think about how complex he could have made it. Mm. Uh, think about what he did not talk about just because he knew it wasn't necessary. He self-edited, you know, he didn't tell us the the details of creating the universe. He didn't tell us the, the intimacies of understanding human emotions just because he didn't. He just said, do not worry. He said, don't worry. And he said, look at the birds of the air and the and the flowers of the field. And, and, and he just it was so tender, so beautiful. And it's like he wanted that simple farmer or that young child. Uh, he wanted the illiterate person. You know, he valued every person and he wanted them to connect with what he was saying. And so it's it. I think we do one another a favor. If we if we keep the message, if we keep the cookies on the lower shelf and uh, I've, I've never perceived myself as a great ac academician anyway. So so for me, it's pretty easy to keep things simple because I'm a pretty simple guy. I would imagine for some academics, uh, it really might be a challenge because they know so much. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and so for them, it, it might be a temptation. Uh, I think about my friend Lee Strobel. You know, wrote yes. a case for Christ, case for faith. I'm right now reading a case for miracles, and uh, he he's just a brilliant guy. He just must have so much knowledge, and yet I can tell he has done his due diligence. He's brought the message to a, a place where somebody like Max Lucado can understand it, and I appreciate that. I do. He didn't have to do that, yeah. but because he did, I want to I learn from him. And so I, you, you appreciate people like that. Tell me more about who and what you like to read. What feeds you? You know, um, I, I wouldn't say I'm a, you know, I'm a, my, my older sister, she is a voracious reader. I mean, she'll go through two or three books a week. It's yeah. just astounding to me. And are you like that? Are I you? am. I am. God bless you. I know how annoying we are. No, 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 no. I think <laughs> I think it's just, I think it's just beautiful. I'm, I'm really not like that, uh, but I'm always reading uh, something, usually in preparation for a sermon series. Um, 
like this this book on promises. I read two or three books uh, on promises, and that and a lot of the books I read if I'm preparing a sermon series, it's not like I sit down and read a, a John Grisham book, you know, beginning to end. Uh, it, I'll, I'll I'll look in the table of contents and I'll pick out the four or five chapters that seem pertinent, and I'll read those. And for recreational reading, however, I, I'm just all over the board. Mm. Uh, I like Daniel Silva. I, I've been reading his books. Uh, I, I like uh, Bill Bryson. He's kind of entertaining British writer. But, I, you know, don't don't think for a minute that I'm as, as well read as someone like you. <laughs> I, 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 I like to read, but yeah. I like movies, too. And I like golf. <laughs> and I like to ride my bike. And so I just kind of have a variety of interests. Yeah. And, and I see my, my reading time as a hobby time. And um, and, and so I, 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 I treat it like that. It's it's a way to, to recharge. Actually, I mean, that strikes me as a writer because in the, the stories you share in Unshakable Hope, there's several that have to do with you being out and doing activities, whether it's athletics or, um, you know, meeting with people and you know, as a writer, that's what we need to do. We need to be living our life and witnessing and observing and noting and interacting. And that gives us great material, which shows up in your book. It really does. You know, there's there's almost a, a person might say that there's a story behind every door of, you know, there, if, if, if we're alert to it, uh, we, we can. Uh, it's, it's pretty amazing how many uh, just little illustrations we come across. Uh, this this morning, I was having trouble with my my computer, and uh, and the tech guy said, "Well, just uh, just just reboot." And I said, "You know, we need to write a we need to write a book called Control Alt Delete." <laughs> yes, <laughs> I agree. That would be a good one. <laughs> yeah. But you know, and 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 I say that facetiously, but that could easily be a chapter someday. So I Absolutely. scribbled that down. Control alt delete when you need to start life over. You know, it's those little phrases that we can find if we're on the lookout for them that that uh, serve as vehicles to communicate a thought. Yeah, for sure. As I as I read Unshakable Hope, and I um, I'll, I'm a minister's wife. My husband is a minister, and I think as I thought about the promises that I have observed, people struggling with the most, I think over the years. It was when a believing person prays, great things happen. And mm. I have seen, and as I, I mean, you've been a pastor for a long time, people who have prayed, you know, for years and years for something, often around their children, and they are, don't, don't feel sometimes that their prayer has been heard or listened to. And can you address that for us? You know, um, we, we think about the story, or I think about the story of Jesus, uh, when the when the nobleman came to him and asked if Jesus would travel uh, from Cana to Capernaum and heal the man's son, and Jesus said, "Your son is healed. Now go. Your faith has has made him well." And um, and I've I've often placed myself in that father's shoes because he wanted Jesus to go back, make that twenty mile walk with him. That was his prayer request. Come with me and heal my son. So Jesus says, no, I'm not going to make that trip, uh, but your son is healed. So the man is left with a difficult situation, I think. 
he's thinking, you know, he's, this, he couldn't just text and say, hey, is my son healthy? Mm-hmm. Uh, he had to decide if he was going to make a 20-mile hike uh, and be obedient, uh, believing that eventually that pr- he would see the answer to that prayer, or should he stay there and try to convince Jesus to do it his way? In this whole topic of unanswered prayer, I, I, I can relate to that father. Because we come to the Lord with our prayers and we say, Lord, here's what I want. Here's how I would like it. And uh, and would you please do it? I mean, that's a prayer. It's, it's very genuine. And the Lord doesn't always do it the way we want him to. He has promised that there will be healing. Uh, but sometimes we have to make a long walk first. And sometimes we even have to go to heaven before we see that healing. Uh, but but we often live on that road somewhere between Capernaum, uh, between Cana and Capernaum, between the, the prayer that's offered and seeing the prayer answered. And so uh, I'm, I'm really sympathetic. Uh, all of us are living with it. I've, I've done this in my church. I'll say, raise your hand if you are living with an unanswered prayer. Mm. And every single hand goes up. Mm. Every single hand. We're all right there. Uh, and so so the message, I think, during those seasons of unanswered prayer is just keep walking to, to walk into Capernaum, keep going home. And and uh, and maybe uh, at a certain mile marker, you'll see, OK, Jesus answered the prayer and maybe he did it in a way greater than I even asked. But by faith, we just keep walking. And there's no doubt that the promise of heaven is that every one of those prayers will be answered. Yeah. Wow. Thank you. Uh, I would not be a good Canadian evangelical if I didn't ask you a question about (laughs) (laughs) about Donald Trump. And you broke a pretty long, I think, political silence um, during the presidential campaign uh, to speak out against how Donald Trump has been speaking about women in, in particular in an article called Decency for President. And more recently, you signed a letter with some other evangelical leaders like Beth Moore, for example, urging the government to have a refugee immigration policy based on compassion. Can you tell us about your uh, what moved you to be involved in a way that I don't think you'd been involved before? Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, it, it's, it's the tone of the presidency that that's disconcerting. Uh, the the dis the seemingly disregard uh, for for more vulnerable people uh, the the immigrants uh, and the disrespect of of women and um, I I, uh, I found that I found myself in a difficult circumstance because many of my friends not a difficult but it's kind of an awkward mm. circumstance many of my colleagues are. are are, are taking the more pragmatic approach and saying, yeah, that's true, but look at the Supreme Court justices and look at the improved economy. And and so uh, I'm sure that, that part of that has credence. And, and yet I, I'm just concerned what we're giving up, what we're losing, and that is this spirit of, of respect. One of the assignments, I think, of a leader, whether it be me as a pastor or whether it be uh, – a mother in a home or a teacher in a schoolroom is to set the right tone, 
the right tone, the tone of 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 uh, kindness one toward another, uh, listening one of another. Uh, that's just the job of a leader. Uh, and and I just I just so wish we had a different tone. I I, I do have regard for uh, political leaders uh, that that through the years have done this well, and uh, I respect them so much. I know it must not be easy at all. Uh, but I just uh, I'm having a hard time getting there uh, with the with the current president. Yeah. Uh, my my impression of, of the vice president is is different. He seems to be uh, very kind and very gracious. And I've even been privileged to have a have a meal with him. And he was such a, a listener. He really asked wonderful questions and was patient and listening. And I don't, I, I, I've never sat down with the president, so I need to be careful and say that. Mm-hmm. Never been asked to the White House and never had a conversation with him. So maybe maybe he's different in person, but boy, the public persona is one that I think is creating a, 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 a tone uh, that um, it, I don't know. I just don't know what price we're paying for this. Yeah. I will say, I think that the rest of the... I, evangelical world, not that I can speak for that, but I'm going to say it anyway. I think it's an encouragement when we see people like you and Beth Moore, like just to name two, um, kind of, I think, courageously taking a different stand than what it seems like uh, the evangelical community in the States is taking. Like, I think there's confusion out there about, um, and a lot of discussion about how the church might be compromising its witness, actually, by being so involved with someone so controversial. Um, do you think that the, like, what what's going to need to happen in the next 10 years in the evangelical community in the States to kind of build up again or, or something? Yeah, um, I wish I was smart enough to give you a really good answer to that question. Um, you know, my concern is especially among younger people. I, I have, and I, when I say younger people, I'm talking in their twenties and thirties. So mm-hmm. since I'm almost 64 now, I, that's what a younger person is to me. <laughs> um, my, my daughter is, uh, I have three daughters and one of whom is, um, is just turned 30 and, and, uh, she's a delightful, delightful daughter. My daughter, Andrea, and uh, she, by the way, has written a great book, <laughs> but she's a she's a freelance writer mm-hmm. and lives in Austin, Texas. And she the, the people she runs around with uh, are not gung ho about Trump. Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're uh, they're turned off by the way he, he does things. And and uh, and the people she's a Christian, but many of the people she she interacts with are not. And she's expressed a concern, and I think it's a good one, and that is, are we damaging? You use the phrase damaging our witness. I think that's a good way to put it. Are we, are, are people aligning, are, are people connotating the uh, Christian faith with the White House? And if so, somebody who would be open to Christ might not be as open because of what they see. And so uh, I'm, I'm just I'm, I'm wanting to really guard my words here. I don't yeah. I, I don't want to overstate it, but because I can't prove that we're uh, causing people to not come to faith or, or they're the they're the Donald Trump's uh, attitudes and actions are keeping people from faith. I, I don't know that. I'm concerned about that, though. I'm, I'm concerned that, that something might be happening that's uh, kind of 
making the water a little bit toxic. Mm. Um, so that's my concern. And, um, I, yeah, I don't talk about, it, talk about it very often. I don't, I'm not, a, I don't keep it a secret either. Uh, uh, I, um, I do appreciate, uh, the, the, uh, the, the strides that, uh, the president has made toward Supreme Court justices, but I'm very concerned about um, is is there a danger in getting so close to Cyrus? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I've heard evangelicals say, "Well, he's just a Cyrus," and just like King Cyrus is, is described in Isaiah 45 as the king who who sent the the Hebrew people, Jewish people, back to Jerusalem. Um, well, maybe so, but I, I just we I'm just concerned. I'm just concerned. I've sat down two or three times to write another blog about it, but I can't quite figure out what to say. <laughs> well, I bet you will. I have come. <laughs> Let's. It's um, such a polarizing topic, mm, isn't it? Oh my goodness! I just—it's yeah. You even clear your throat on it, and people get angry. So I don't. Well, well, thank you for <laughs> being willing to speak to it a little bit with well, us. Thank you, No, I appreciate the question. Um, let's go back to your book. You have this great story early on, which I think um, kind of summarizes the message of your book, and it's the shaky thumb story. And I thought maybe we could end on that. Okay. Yeah, that's that's a little more of an upbeat topic. <laughs> it is. <laughs> now, I do have a shaky thumb. Um, I have my left thumb. It, it shakes all the time. It quivers. And uh, and uh, when it first began shaking about 15 years ago, I was uh, concerned about that. My right thumb does not, but my left thumb does. And, uh, and so I went to the neurologist and I explained to him that my father died of, of ALS, which is a neurological disease. And um, uh, he said, well, yeah, that's cause to be concerned. Let's see. Let's see what's going on. And. He performed a few tests and we did some blood work and he had me come back into the office and he said, no, the good news. I don't I don't think you have anything to worry about. And I said, are you sure? And somewhere in the conversation, he said, "Uh, I promise, I promise. And so all of a sudden I had uh, a new weapon with which to deal with the fear of my shaky thumb. I went down to the car, got in the car and started driving home. And I noticed that my left hand on the steering wheel, that my left thumb was shaking. And and so all of a sudden, though, and I could I I had a, a new way of looking at that shaking thumb. I could either look at the shaky thumb and be afraid or I could look at the shaky thumb and say, you know what? I have a promise. The doctor promised me that uh, that I don't have anything to worry about. It's just a localized tremor. And so I use that story in the book to ask the question, what's shaking in your world? Uh, maybe it's the economy. Maybe it's. Maybe it's your relationship. Maybe it's your your uh, your employment situation. Maybe it's your health. All of us have a, a Hurricane Florence in our lives, you know, or something that's just bearing down on the shore. And um, it's causing things to shake. And uh, what I think is that God has given us these great and precious promises in the Bible uh, so that we can trust him and we can hear his voice. And so I just encourage people, rather than focus on that shaky thumb, Focus on your heavenly Father and what He says, and see if see if you can't find the strength to face the difficult challenges by building your lives on the promises of God. Thank you for listening to this podcast. 
To listen to more and to subscribe to Faith Today, Canada's Christian magazine, please visit www.theefc.ca forward slash faith today.